Turn with me to Mark chapter 9 as we continue our study in the book of Mark. Mark chapter 9. Before we go to his word, let's go to him again in prayer so that we can gain his wisdom as we go to the text. Let's, Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your holy word, we pray that you would help us. We pray that for your wisdom, for your mercy. We need your wisdom because ours is failing. We trust in the things of this world more than we trust in you. And so therefore our wisdom struggles. We need your mercy to that end as well. Help us to trust in you more. Help us to believe like we ought. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we come to Mark chapter 9, this is a very important event in the life of Jesus in the time that Jesus was here on earth, and it's known as the Transfiguration. And when I thought of this, and when I thought about this, it made me think of a story that I've told you once before, but it just it was so fitting I couldn't pass it up. It's been several years, so maybe you just don't even remember. I climbed a mountain once, once, that was it. And the mountain was called Old Rag in Virginia. Maybe some of you are familiar with it because it's, it's called that because it has an exposed summit. If you've ever seen the, the Appalachian Mountains, they're all covered with trees. This particular one is not. It has rocks on top, which is kind of what you would think of as a mountain. And when I say mountain, don't picture me like with snow all around me and having all this mountain gear. It's like a hiking trip. So I don't mean to make myself look special or anything. Um, but one of the features of this hike is that it has a series of things called false summits. And basically what a false summit is, is you're walking up and you see what looks like the only thing in front of you in the air. Like there's nothing higher than that. And then as you get to the top of it, you realize that, oh, there's this whole other thing behind there. You couldn't see that other thing because the false summit is just so big that it just is in the way. So you... You get to that and you realize, oh, I'm not anywhere close to the summit. There's a whole lot more climbing to do. And since this was my first mountain, I found myself getting frustrated. And I was thinking, when is this ever going to end? It just keeps getting more and more difficult. It was hard. Once you get to the top, though, it's all worth it. You look around and you're like, oh, everything's there and it's all really small. It was pretty cool. So in our text today, we have this kind of false summit. We look at this event known as the transfiguration. Jesus is seemingly changed in front of his inner circle of disciples, Peter, James, and John. Not only that, Moses and Elijah show up and join the party as well. And so it's easy to see this is a very important event, especially for the disciples present. What we're going to see as their lives continue on after Jesus goes into heaven. It's also important for us to understand because we live in this time of false summits in which we have these moments of spiritual clarity and spiritual blessing that make it seem like we could never come down from this thing only to realize that we even haven't even begun to climb this life. For the disciples, they had been living in this daily kind of thing where they watched Jesus live and minister and yet they struggled with their own faith and their, and their own direction, believing Jesus yet not believing him at the same time. We see this over and over, and I think next week's passage in particular is going to highlight this struggle very well. We have rode this kind of roller coaster 
with them. And their trial in many ways mirrors our own. So as we look closely at this text, I want to examine it from the perspective of the anticipation of the kingdom of God. What that felt like then, what it feels like now. And when I say that, the anticipation of the coming kingdom where Jesus finally comes back, his second coming, and makes everything right. We all feel this anticipation, right? We've been on this mountain a long time. We're ready to see it from the top. We're tired of looking at the top from another false summit. We're ready for the reward. But Jesus, in his goodness and his patience, has seen fit to tarry a while. And he's going to continue to do so, so that we may do his work here on earth. And so as we look at this text, I think we're going to gain more understanding of that. So there's three main ideas here. First, coming in his power, coming with authority, and then coming with understanding. So with that, look with me at the text, Mark chapter 9, starting at verse 1, going through to verse 13. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Mark chapter 9, verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And they and there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why did the scribes say that Elijah, or that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things, and how it is written, the Son of Man, that he, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So just quickly, remember last week, we looked at Peter's kind of shining star moment when he confessed Jesus to be the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. He said, Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And he said, you are the Christ. This Messiah would initiate this new covenant in which the law would be written on the hearts of the people. We read this in Jeremiah 31. And that the Father would rise up the righteous branch of David who would execute justice and righteousness in the land. And and this Lord would be called the Lord is our righteousness. We see this in Jeremiah 33. In fact, turn with me to Jeremiah 33. This is a very important passage for us. As we understand today, there are others, but this is the one that I decided to pick because well, I just like it. So Jeremiah 33, and these whole, this little section of Jeremiah is all about these coming new covenant promises. And this particular section is one that I like because it talks about David and his, the promises through David. So look with me at verses 14 through 18. 
It's the Lord speaking. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days at the time, and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And in those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it, by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priests shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. It's a pretty incredible promise concerning our Lord Jesus. And consider it from the perspective of the disciples there that day with Jesus. Jewish men living in a time of Roman occupation and oppression. The coming Messiah, what's he going to be? He's going to be prophet, priest, and king. And we see that right here in Jeremiah. We read that from the catechism a few weeks ago. He's going to be ruling. He's going to be making sacrifices, speaking the very word of God. Now, when Jesus comes, does he make sacrifices? No. He would become the sacrifice for his people, for the people of God. And he would be called our righteousness. Keep that in mind as we read here, because it may be easy to wonder why Peter has this other kind of funny moment here as he says something weird when he sees Elijah and Moses and Jesus standing there. He kind of has this odd moment that Peter's about to ascend his false summit of his own. And he, just like us, they lo- we long for the day that Jesus is going to come and finally make all things right here on earth. And so Peter's longing for that day, and perhaps he sees that this is it. And he realizes it's not. So that brings us to the first point, coming in power. Look with me at Mark 9, verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This verse is lots and lots of fun. It's because we put our own ideas onto this verse when we come to it and we read it. Rather than bringing our ideas out from the text, we have our idea and then we're like, hmm, can I go find my idea? Oh, well, look, there it is. Instead of reading it and bringing ideas out of it. And so what, do we, what idea do we come from? Well, we want to know when Jesus is going to come back and make all things right. Oh, it says right here. That's not what's going on here. A lot of people have interpreted this either even and said, see, look, Jesus' second coming was obviously sometime in the first century because the people there still had to be alive for him to come back. And, and that assumes that this is talking about his second coming. Is it that obvious that this is talking about his second coming or do we put that on the text? It's not obvious. It just says that he's coming in his power. And then you only need just to read a little bit further to see Jesus come in his power. And then if you just keep reading a couple more chapters ahead, you're going to see him be risen from the dead, coming in his power. And there were those there alive that day that saw that. Immediately we see that with the transfiguration, later with the resurrection. Obviously his second coming will be him coming in power. But we don't need to see this as, well, Jesus must have come back in the first century for this sentence to be true. That's not at all what's going on here. Remember that when we come to a text of Scripture, context is key. And the context here 
is the transfiguration, not our current events or our theological bent. Rant over. Those who stood around here, or those who stood around him that day, remember before he went up to the Mount of Transfiguration, what did he just got through saying to people? Take up your cross daily and follow me. Now it is his disciples are hearing, and those around him were hearing, there are some here that will not taste death until my kingdom comes in power. Wouldn't that be incredible to hear and refreshing to hear that I'm being asked to take up my cross daily as a Christian, but Jesus is going to come into his power really soon. That's going to be great. If I've got to deny myself daily, if I've got to lose my life to gain it, I want to know that the promise maker can make good on his promises. That this is not all for naught. If I have to lose my life for the sake of Christ and his gospel, then the promise of the gospel needs to be worth the sacrifice. Absolutely it is. With the threat of Rome, Jewish leadership all around, Jesus tells his followers that it is absolutely worth it. When he comes, he'll come in power, not as one who can be pushed around at all, but as one who will come with justice and righteousness, sitting on the throne of David forever, eliminating the need for priests to make sacrifices. All of that thing is going to be done through him. He's going to be called the Lord our Righteousness. And so his coming will be one of power. And he shows this in the very next section. Mark, let's look at verses 2 through 4. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, led them up to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking to Jesus. Pretty incredible. So Jesus has changed as he appeared so white that it was different than any white anyone had ever seen. The the mark, the writer here, has to come about this a weird way. It's so white that no one on earth can even reproduce this white. So that was he was trying to let us know this is something that was just unbelievable to even see. It's incredible. And then there's our two men that appear with him, Moses and Elijah. Which I'm assuming that Jesus had to tell them who those men were. Because you don't just see two guys and think, oh, I know who that is. It's not like they had photographs or anything. But it is interesting that these are the two that came. Moses representing the law. Elijah representing the prophets. Two pillars of the Jewish faith. Absolutely. And so imagine you're Peter, James, and John. Jesus takes you up to this mountain. All of a sudden he becomes transfigured or transformed in front of them. And there appears two giant pillars of your faith. These, these are like heroes that he's read about since he was a boy. Imagine that. And then you get kind of what he's saying. Verse 5. And Peter said, Rabbi, it's, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tents. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say. For they were terrified. We would all be terrified too. But I think the part I really stuck on here was verse, verse six or verse, uh, sorry, verse four. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses and they were talking to Jesus. And can you imagine that? That conversation, what they're having there with Jesus? Moses and Elijah looked forward to the coming Messiah. They, they longed for the day of Jesus. And now it was here. And now Jesus was standing with them. Talking to them. He was their savior too. 
They too needed the righteousness of Christ in order to be saved. That's what they were talking with Jesus about. In Luke chapter 9, we see that. Luke, Luke gives us a little more information here. We read that they were talking with Jesus about his departure, which was about to be accomplished. It wasn't his departure from the top of the mountain. It was his departure from this life. As he was being killed, referring to his death. When Paul writes about this in Romans 1, verse 4, he says, And he was declared to be the Son of God in power. You get the real thrust of this here. Here are two Jewish monoliths appearing with Jesus to talk about the power of his death, burial, and resurrection. So imagine Peter. He's in Roman occupation. The Jewish Jewish, uh, leadership is trying to get him. They're trying to kill Jesus. What does he want to do? He never wants to come down from this mountain, ever. Hey, Jesus. Can we just make some tents for you guys? Can we just stay up here and never come down? Can we just live up here? You know, I'll make one for all three of you. You can all have your own little tent. The world is down there. Do we, can we make this the end? Can this be the end? Can this be the true summit that we're all looking for? Brothers and sisters in Christ, we long for that day. Did we not? The coming of the Lord in His power. I think more than any time in my life, I want that now. Yet, the fact is, is that that has happened. It happened on that mountain, a small picture of it, a big picture of it. It happened when he was risen from the dead, from that tomb. It's happening in your life. It's happening in my life. It happened when he rose us from the dead, when he brought us to new life in Christ our Lord. And we await that day. We, will, we long for the day when the scripture says there will be no more tears and, and no more sadness and no more sin. But in Christ, we have his power today. So let us rejoice and be glad. Brings me to the next point, coming with authority. So just when Peter couldn't get any more shook up than he was, this voice comes out from the heavens. And I think a lot of times when we read the scriptures we read this like the voice comes from heaven. It's like, oh yeah, that's pretty normal for scripture. It's not really normal, you know, for voices to come out of the clouds. And so you can imagine that Peter would be uh, pretty shook up hearing that as well. And we need to be honest. We all think that we would love to hear the voice of God coming from the cloud telling us exactly what to do, would we not? We would love to hear, I've got these decisions to make. God, can you just please tell me what to do? We've probably even prayed that in our lives. I know I have. I really, in that time, I want God to come down and say, Mike, here's exactly what you should do. I would really, really like that. And why would he have a deep voice? Maybe, you know, who knows? I just imagine that. Who knows what kind of voice he had? I just wish I knew what to do in this situation. We always, we have those moments. To deal with this situation, what do people do? What do people do when they come to this one and they have to make an important decision? Maybe other people are watching that important decision. Well, they just make up stories about their conversation with Jesus, about Jesus coming to them on their front porch or in a dream that they had or whatever. They use those experiences to justify some pretty stupid stuff sometimes. Not always, but sometimes. The voice said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Peter, James, and John wondering what they should do. What should we do? Should we go down from this mountain? Should I make tents for these guys? What should I do? This is my son. Listen to him. 
Seems pretty straightforward. Peter had been struggling with that, right? Listening to Jesus. Just read the end of chapter 8. He still would continue to struggle with that throughout his life. This had to be a major turning point for him. We see that later in his own writing. We'll get there. After the resurrection, these men wrote about this event. Jesus told them, don't write about this. Don't talk to anyone about this until after I'm risen from the dead. Well, after he was risen from the dead, they absolutely wrote about it because it's very important for the church. Peter used it to explain to the church what listen to Jesus meant. And it's not waiting for him to show up on your front porch. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. We'll see exactly what Peter said about it. 2 Peter chapter 1. I'll just recommend 2 Peter in general to you for a book to understand how to live and cope with a crazy world. Um, it's a it's a good one. It's a really it's a good one for us today. And so 2 Peter chapter 1, let's look at verses 16 through 21. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths. Remember, this is Peter. This is the one who just said we need to make tents for these guys. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He's telling the story that we just read. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on that holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What's Peter saying here to the people? Even on that mountain, which Peter and two others heard the very voice of God speak out. This did not give them the authority to start meeting with Jesus on their front porch, so to speak. Obviously, they had him right there. But what is Peter saying about hearing the very voice of God? What is he saying has happened? In verse 19, and we have, because of what we saw, because of what we bore witness to, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Which word? Not something that exists out in the cloud, but something that exists in your Bibles. The prophetic word, now that the, now that God has spoken to us, that word that He has spoken from all time is now fully confirmed because of what we've heard and seen. And then what does He tell us now about this word? He tells us that you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Do you want to know what to do in this life? Jesus is the Son of God. Listen to Him. Where are his words? We have them. We don't need to go find some other word. We have 
his words. And they have been more fully confirmed. Peter helps us out a little bit more if you keep going. Chapter 3 of Second Peter. Just in case we should think we should now be stuck in the Old Testament for, to find this more perfect word. Look with me at chapter 3, verses 15 through 18, if you're still there. These are his final words to the people. He says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul, who also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. So he's talking about Paul's writings now. As he does in all of his letters, which he speaks in them, in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do with the other scriptures. And so what is, what is Peter saying about Paul's writings? What is he making them equal to? The other scriptures. These are the very words of God. What we have in front of us is the prophetic word more fully confirmed. So Peter says, not only should you listen to the voice of Jesus found in Moses and the prophets, but you should also listen to Paul as he directly compares Paul's letters to the other scriptures. When Christ was transfigured on that mountain, he came in power and he came in authority as well. The father above said, listen to him. Peter later affirms this, that we listen to him by reading the words of the scriptures. Christians, the voice that spoke to Moses as a man speaks to his friend face to face. The voice that spoke to Elijah as he did, as he hid him in the cleft of the rock. The voice that spoke to Peter, James, and John on that Mount Transfiguration is the voice that speaks to you as you read the words of the Bible. To wait for some other word is idolatry. And it's to say, no, Jesus, I need something different or better. I don't want to listen to that word. I want to listen to this special thing that you're going to tell me. Instead, let us trust in the words of the Lord, which is more and more important with each passing day. And lastly, he's coming in understanding. Look with me at verses 9 through 11, back in Mark chapter 9. As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what is risen or what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must first, Elijah must come? So why are they saying that Elijah has to come first before all of these things have to happen? You can imagine the the questions the disciples are having now, they just saw Jesus transfigured before them. They just saw these two Old Testament pillars. They just heard the voice of God calling down from heaven. It's a pretty interesting moment in the lives of the disciples. They had a lot of good questions. Things are probably starting to line up in their heads, actually. You know those moments where you're like, when you find a couple of things, you're like, oh, that makes so much sense now. It's actually starting to happen for them. The wheels are starting to turn, and they're starting to... Get their Old Testament now as they see the life of Jesus Christ. And so this transfiguration brought them to this false kind of summit where they thought this could be the end, but it wasn't really. And they saw the end a little bit more clearly and they're getting a picture of it. And so they have this really good question for Jesus. What about Elijah? This was the moment that Jewish people had been waiting for this coming of Elijah. 
In Malachi 4, which is the last chapter of the Old Testament, there's a promise that Elijah will come before the day of the Lord. And when he comes, he will turn the hearts of their children back to their fathers. What this means is this the idea that Elijah's coming will turn the people of God back to the faith of their fathers, turning them back to the Lord. And so the disciples are asking, we know what we just saw, but we've been told that Elijah is supposed to come before all of this takes place. Elijah is supposed to have come before all this takes place, and he hasn't. So what does this all mean? Well, Jesus answers them, verses 12 and 13. And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of them. Jesus is helping them to understand this apparent contradiction between the fact that Elijah is coming to restore things, yet the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected. This is hard. They thought everything was going to get better. Jesus is telling them, no, we may have some rough road ahead of us. How does he do that? Well, he tells them it's already happened. Elijah's already come. Matthew chapter 11, Jesus tells the disciples that John the Baptist was the fulfillment of the coming of Elijah. When he came, you did see a small picture of this restoration. When John the Baptist was out there baptizing in the desert, who was going to him to be baptized? Was it Gentile converts? No. It was Jewish people being baptized in preparation for the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. John pointed to him. This is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. I am unworthy to even untie his shoes. They were being given a sign which pointed to the reality that Jesus would bring, that sinners would have their sins cleansed. The Lord, our righteousness, is coming to execute justice and righteousness. But the prophecy isn't complete without the sacrifice of Jesus on behalf of the people. In verse 13, Elijah did come. And what did they do to Elijah? Whatever they pleased. What did they do to John the Baptist? They cut his head off, served it on a platter while the king watched his niece dance. Not much has changed because the people still wait for some kind of sign. They reach a false summit. They look around and think, this is it. We finally made it. Here we are. We've done the thing. For the world, the only hope that they have is some little mountain that they've even built for themselves. But what we have to offer the world is so much more than that. I think we can all relate with this ourselves. We want to see Jesus. We want, and we want to see him so badly that we even start to see him in, in the tea leaves, so to speak. We want to find some special little secret, build some special little false summit around ourselves and think, look, I've made it. This is great. We really do believe in Jesus, but we really want things to be made new right now. We don't want to wait. We want everything to be perfect, so we create our own little versions of that that are false. We only let others like us in. We shut everything else out. But there's a world who needs to be told, no, we're not there yet. Many in the church need someone to point them to Jesus Christ. The church needs this desperately. If you don't think they do, just watch preaching on TV. They need someone to actually tell them the gospel, to point them to Jesus instead of pointing them continually to themselves. 
Everyone in the world needs this. The people of God, they need the people of God to point them to Jesus. To say, that's the goal. That's where we're going. It's not about you. It's about Him. He is the author. He is the finisher of our faith. He is the only hope for the salvation of the world. He is coming in power. And he is the authority of God the Father. He is the one in whom we receive honor and glory. He is the Lord our righteousness. So in conclusion, let us continue to press forward toward that goal, brothers and sisters in Christ. The day is coming when we will be made complete in Christ Jesus our Lord, but it's not yet here. We still have work to do. And so let us continue to point others to Jesus. He is the only hope for a dying world. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us to understand, that you would help us to to continue on, that we would continue the climb, that we would not stop, that you've called us to continue. Help us increase our faith. Show us more and more of yourselves. Help us to live as we ought to live. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to point others to you, that there's no other way for salvation. There's no other cure for the disease of sin and death. Help us to be the ones who point others to you. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.